0: And you really do wonder sometimes. In just one year, he wrote a trio of extraordinary masterpieces Tamilano, Giuliano Cesare, and Rodolinda. Rodolinda was composed for the first Royal Academy of Music, which had been founded in 1719 by a group of aristocrats who wanted a ready supply of Italian opera on their doorstep. And it was given its first performance on the 13th of February, 1725, at the King's Theatre in the Haymarket and it was produced with the same singers who had performed in Tamilano not long before. There were 14 performances. It was repeated in December 1725 with a further 18 performances, and again on the 4th of May 1731, which led to another 16 performances. And, of course, as is often the case with Handel, at each revival there was new material, the score was altered, changes were made. We have to presume therefore that it was liked by indeed, the aristocracy who wanted their own opera seria but also enjoyed by the general public too. But if it's pleasing airs as one contemporary critic said were enjoyed what really excited the town was the diva who took the title role of Rodolinda. That's Francesca Cazzoni and above all it was her costume that really excited people. That wonderful inveterate gossip the sort of Gadfly on the rump of social 18th century Britain, Horace Walpole reported on Cusoni appearing in a brown silk gown trimmed with silver, with the vulgarity and indecorum of which all the old ladies were much scandalized. The young promptly adopted it as a fashion, so universally that it seemed a national uniform for youth and beauty. I do rather wonder how many of you will be appearing in Rebecca Evans' outfit um, tomorrow morning when you go to the office. You will see the point of that little joke when you see what Rebecca Evans wears in this production. The libretto for Rodolinda is by Handel's regular collaborator at this time, Nicola Francesco Heim, and was based on an earlier libretto by Antonio Salvi, which had been set by an Italian composer, Giacomo Antonio Perti, in 1710. What's really interesting is that Salvi's libretto had originated with a French play, Pierre Cornet's Petarite, Roi des Lombards, written in 1653, based on the history of a king of the Lombards in the seventh century. Um, were I to try and untangle Heim's plot, I'm afraid we'd be here probably until tomorrow morning, if not tomorrow tea time. Suffice it to say, for the purposes of what we're going to do, that Rodolinda is the virtuous wife of Betarido, king of Lombardy, whose throne has been stolen by the wicked Grimoaldo. Grimoaldo also intends to steal Rodolinda when uh, Betarido... Pretends to be dead, despite the fact that this usurper actually has, as usual in Handel operas, promised to marry somebody else in the plot, Edwiger. With the help of Unolfo, uh, Betarido's friend and counselor, and despite the villainy of a character inap- rather strangely named Garibaldo, Grimo Alda's sidekick, All's Well That Ends Well, after three acts, a torrent of Da Capo arias, and some rather nasty moments. Well, we've a quartet of guests tonight to explore Handel's Rodolinda, which is directed by Richard Jones's second Handel production. He's also directed Julius Caesar before. Um, you can't always believe what you read in the newspapers. Eleanor Dennis, who's covering the role of Rosalinda, and Christopher Bucknell, who's playing the harpsichord in the pit for tonight's performances, to be with us, and they're going to perform music from the opera at the end of our time together. We're also joined by Richard Gerard Jones, who is the staff director here at English National Opera, has been working on this new production, and he's worked regularly with tonight's director, Richard Jones. So no relations, as far as we know, on many of his productions. And our fourth guest is the writer Jonathan Keats, who has written a biography of Handel handle the man and his music. So will you please welcome our first guest, Jonathan Keats. Jonathan, 1724 really was something of an annus mirabilis for Handel, wasn't it? I mean, Tamilano, Giulio Cesare, and Rodolinda. Do you see obvious links between these three works? No, there are no obvious links between
1: these three works, except that Handel wrote them, and they're written in the same genre. Um, But otherwise, they're three completely different operas with completely different... Um, what Verdi would have called tinta to them. The color of these three operas is absolutely distinctive. We have Giulio Cesare, which is the uh, this adventure story, really. Um, uh, it's a swashbuckling, exciting uh, work, working towards its happy ending. We have Tamerlano, which is the only tragic opera Handel wrote. Um, uh, Bleak, grim, inexorable um, uh, where practically everybody is downtrodden um, uh, except for the title character um, who is a complete prat really. Sorry um, if that word shocks you. Um, And finally uh, Rodolinda, this wonderful tragicomedy, comedy working through to uh, very convincingly to its happy ending. Can I just say that I gather the happy ending is not so happy? That um, in this production, I don't know. Uh, that is the great challenge uh, for us nowadays to accept the convention of the happy ending in. Uh, 18th century operas area, Um, uh, but I would just fly a flag for the happy ending of Rodolinda. It does actually work, but uh, I greatly admire Richard Jones as a director, so I'll be very interested to see his take on this.
0: The the libretto, as I said, begins with uh, a French neoclassical tragedy by Cornet. Is there any element within uh, what eventually Heim will produce for Handel to set that somehow reflects that neoclassical French tradition?
1: Uh, Up to a point, I suppose, there is in that this style of drama had been taken over on the Italian operatic stage at the end of the 17th, beginning of the 18th century, where there was a great clearing out of the attic, as it were. Um, Italian opera up to that stage had had sort of comic servants and widow-twanky nurses in drag and uh, um, mil- a million different intrigues going on and hundreds of arias. Um, and somebody, various librettists took the chopper to this Uh, and used French neoclassical tragedy as their model. So that nobody in these operas is below the rank of what might one say, uh, using Burke's peerage, um, a duke, really. We're in
0: frightfully
1: smart company. (laughs)
0: Um, What sort of changes do um, Heim and Handel bring to a libretto that has already been set as indeed was the custom often in the eighteenth century. Are there significant changes that, in a sense, tell us what they're up to as they leave their fingerprints on the score?
1: Yes, there are, but there are less than there are fewer than they actually needed to make in uh, in the other libretti on which they worked. Heim was Handel's most sympathetic collaborator. He was the the Boito or the Piave of, for Handel. Um, they worked very, very sympathetically together. Um, uh, but with this libretto, uh, and Handel clearly respected Salvi's achievement because he set several of his other uh, libretti uh, to music, including, of course, Ariodante. Dante. With this libretto, they needed to make fewer changes um, uh, uh, what they had was really, basically, was was very good. They cut down, most of all, the recitative, because the English audience would not really have found that particularly sympathetic or interesting. You could buy a libretto, a printed word book, and read it through. But really, what people came to hear was the arias. Uh, and the arias, they, in various ways, repositioned so as to put the stress, the spotlight on uh, the, uh, the two principal figures of Bertarido, sung by Senezino, the great castrato, uh, and Cuzzoni uh, singing Rodolinda, uh, this extraordinary dumpy little woman who was expected to incarnate three very, very
0: different heroines in the space of a few months, uh, and did it superbly, it seems. We might also remind ourselves that she was pregnant at the point when she actually sang Rodolinda.
1: Yes, this was uh, not... This, uh, along with the brown and silver dress, which may indeed have been a kind of maternity dress, uh, which uh, which then became the fashion, Was uh, was also not... Bien vu by uh, the uh, the smart audience, but she went ahead with it. Um, is she
0: a new kind of heroine for handle?
1: Yes, in that she is not a she is not a newbile woman. She is already married. She is a mother. To that extent, she is unglamorous. Um, most of Handel's operatic heroines, apart, of course, uh, from, the, uh, from the heroine of uh, Radomisto, Zenobia, um, uh, are unmarried. Instead, here we have a wife and a mother, um, uh, a very different kind of character to Asteria in Tamilano, or... Cleopatra in Giulio Cesare, miles away from Cleopatra, one might say.
0: As you said, we have a succession of arias. Indeed, the one duet in the opera comes as something rather like a a sort of oasis after this long journey through through successive da Capo arias. Um, You've also said, you've written that at the start of an aria, the person singing it is in one state, and by the time they finish they're in another state. So these arias are used to measure psychological change or to reveal psychological change. Yes, they are to mark
1: instant moments of crux, moments of flux, moments of change. Um, and I always feel, I'm a great defender of the Da Capo aria. I've never had a problem with hearing the same music twice, um, especially if it's Handel. Um, uh, i 've never had a problem with the with the repeat with the middle section, um, and what you what the practice of ornamenting the repeats uh, actually very often underlines is this sense of the character going through an emotional or uh, psychological experience and coming out at the other end. In a somewhat different way, we could say this of all arias. Of course, we could say this of Tatiana in Eugene and Yegin, but I mean, you know, it's um, uh, uh, it's easier, I think, to to grasp this uh, in this form of
0: opera. Grimaldo has an aria at the end, and. Um, which is, in a sense, our way towards the happy end that you already talked about, in which he reveals an extraordinary change of heart. But in some ways, it's rather conventional because he makes the usual appeal to wanting not to be a duke in a court, but to be a shepherd, you know, the golden age, the usual 18th-century vision of the pastoral. Do we think, psychologically, as we listen to Vizari, that something rather different is happening? He really is not simply mouthing the familiar sentiments, but actually has understood what he's done. Uh, I think he
1: corresponds to a rather interesting type that had turned up in the spoken drama of the late 17th, early 18th century. You find uh, his prototype in the character of Maskwell in a marvellous play by Congreve called The Double Dealer, which was produced in about 1692 or something like that. Maskwell, at one point, is an absolute horror, complete villain in this comedy but at one point he has a a wonderful moment where he is actually sort of disgusted with his own villainy as if he's bored with it as if it's sitting on his shoulders and i always feel that Grimaldo is a bit like maskwell in the double dealer in that sense and that handel's audience would have recognized
0: that this character do you think that an audience sitting in the King's Theatre uh, in that first round of performances would have read this opera not only as an extraordinarily beautiful musical occasion, but as a, a little moral fable about power and the abuse of power? I think there were lots
1: of, there is a very strong moral basis to opera this area. Although we know that all sorts of things went on in the theatres while an opera was being performed, though there's actually no evidence in England for people Uh, sort of eating meals and throwing spaghetti out of the boxes and that sort of thing, Um, uh, um, there was nevertheless uh, a strong sense of the moral base of opera and the moral basis of operatic plots. There was also a great interest among the Academy audience of Handel's 1720 operas uh, in the political aspect, so that all these operas have a rather ambiguous political flavor. This year, we're celebrating, after all, the tercentenary of the Hanoverian succession. Ra ra says I. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, let's hear it for George the I, a much maligned monarch. Um, and uh, the, uh, But there would have been plenty of people in the audience who w- would wish that the exiled Stuarts were back on the throne. Uh, I won't, obviously, but, push but that.
0: Donald, that's fascinating, because we need to remember the date. It's 1725, it is and 17- it's about to be the first change in the new dynasty. It is indeed about to be the first
1: change in the new dynasty um, and there are ructions, as always in the Hanoverian royal family, down the generations, um, Queen Victoria and her children being uh, um, uh, an obvious example. Um, uh, there are ructions within the royal family that the public knows about. Um, so uh, uh, I don't think they they, they hope that, uh, that uh, they suspect that George II is waiting to sort of um, fling uh, his father into a cell or something like that. But there, are, uh, there is this uh,
0: unease, let's put it like that. Jonathan Keats, thank you very much indeed. Stay with us, please. Thank you. Our second guest this evening is Richard Gerard-Jones, who, as I've said, has been working as a staff director here at English National Opera and has also worked on this new production with Richard Jones. Will you welcome, please, Richard (laughs) Gerard-Jones. Richard, this is an enormous question, and you may think it's so large that we should leave it. But what are the kind of principal challenges in trying to stage an opera written in the beginning of the 18th century at the start of the 21st century
2: um many so uh, yeah it's a very large question um but uh yeah i think you have to um well it was interesting when the conversation about da carpo arias and about uh how uh, it's a very unusual formula now i mean that's a completely unusual formula itself structure is um is taken for granted now, or, or, or its, uh, its lack of structure is taken for granted in in, in in entertainment, so in music or in drama now, you, are, you, you never notice the structure in that way. Uh, so you have to kind of um, make it work uh, in terms of psychology. So uh, you have to apply a very rigorous psychological structure to the way you direct it. So you have to uh, invent or elaborate or create in some way something which um, brings the music and the structure and the formula of the music into, uh, into a kind of 3D, um, which is the psychological reality, which we expect as an audience today. So
0: that involves really working with singers as acting singers to think about, um, Histories for these characters to yeah. try to find, uh, you know, why they're there and what they may do,
2: and the kind of standard work you would do on the stage. Exactly. I mean, a backstory. Uh, each of the characters has must have a have an interior life for them to uh, be interesting to watch as an audience. And you, as an audience, who will watch the show, um, sh- won't be aware of the, the 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 large quantity of work which has gone on behind uh, the a very small, relatively small amount of work, which you will see. So, uh, Rebecca, for example, had a folder with her backstory written by me and Richard and Sarah, and uh, the whole creative team worked together on a backstory for her, and she took it on the first day of rehearsal, and she elaborated it, and she read it, and she took it home, and she brought it back, and she showed people. People looked at each other's work. Um, John Mark Hainsley, all of the singers, do that. You know, all, all artists uh, kind of have an interior life to the to the work which you see the exterior of. Um, but I think particularly for Handel, that's really important because there's actually very little psychology. Handel is extraordinary because it touches on psychology in fact, and through music um, as very few Baroque uh, composers or in fact anybody really until the 20th century achieved. Um, but uh, you do need to be very rigorous with it, actually, and uh, not let it wallow in itself and not let it sit in a bath of its own beauty. And that's quite difficult with Handel because it's so extraordinary. I love so that phrase, a bath of its own beauty.
0: <laughs> I know exactly what you um, If you look at the screen on my uh, left, you'll see there are images from tonight's production, so you have a sense of, of what you're going to see.
2: Um, I'm going to ask you, very where, where are we in terms of place and time? Uh, it's Italy. It's definitely Italy. And it's in the second half of the 20th century. So I think any attempts to define a particular decades would fail because you see costumes which are quite forties, but you also see VHS uh, videos and you see a television system and you see um, people being tortured, which could be any time from the Second World War or before or after. Or uh, Yeah, so it's um, it's specifically Italy, which you can see, but it's specifically un uh, rooted in a year, for example. It, it seems
0: the regime, for whatever reason, um, has retreated into a series of bunkers with mm. connecting cells below.
2: It's very, it's very Beckett, isn't it? It's quite kind of, uh, it's, like, it's like an end game. It's like these are the only people left in the world uh, and there's nobody else. You never see any actors. You never see anybody moving anything. Nothing appears which you don't see being placed there by somebody. So it's, uh, it could be the last city of seven people in the world.
0: And and it could also perhaps be, you know, the kind of uh, the bunkers that were constructed by fascist dictatorships both during the uh, middle of the 20th century and at the end too.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a classic scenario. I think those people playing out the last moments of power between each other or continuing power or bickering about power in any way could could be in any century, but it's uh, it's a very brutalist, fascist uh, set, which you'll see. It's quite unforgiving. The
0: the idea of video cameras and and people watching each other, is this a sense of um, a, a projection of their own feelings about each other, or is this simply a world in which nothing is done that is unrecorded and unnoticed, and that's the terror of it?
2: I think it's a world of paranoia. I think it's a world where somebody uh, can't relax. You can never relax if there are only seven people and all of them want to be king. You can never relax. You can't go to bed. So it's a, it's a world where no one ever really sleeps because they're watching their back or having their back watched for them by the person they think they trust. That's the world it's in. And uh, you see in, in the production, you see Grimoaldo, uh, who is the new king, sitting in the office and you see the prisoners sitting in the prison, but it's only recently that that's changed. And the the king who's in exile, who's become a kind of heartthrob hero for everybody on the stage, because he's supposed to be dead and he's a pacifist, uh, he only a while before was sitting in the office with the TV control cameras and he had prisoners. And So it's a cycle where someone has the upper hand and then it switches, but it's never it's never, I think it's a world where nobody is ever Clear. That's why that aria about being a shepherd is so amazing. Because nobody ever is just a shepherd. Actually, it's because there's always so much in in there's so much trouble in these characters that they can never just switch off and go to sleep, which is what he wants. He gets woken up with a knife in his face. That's that's. Uh, the drama of it, I think.
0: And, and the sense in which which a cycle of violence is indeed just that, a cycle
2: of unending violence. Yeah. This leads to more and to more and to more. There's no end to that. Sorry. No, I, I think that's... Very, it's Darwin. I mean, Dar- we are all animals. There's, there's no more... There's no uh, platform to stand on which isn't that to explore. I mean, that's that's the problem. That's the world we live in. We are all animals and we all want to win. <laughs> so, and, and that's why... Those stories are fantastic. Those stories of people killing each other and people bartering their children, and they're extreme, and they're people in chains. You know, that's really kind of, it must have really excited Baroque audiences. It must have, it's still exciting, it's good. <laughs> there is a distinction in the production between
0: the women who, by and large, um, whatever their emotional attitudes, have a, a, a level of, of, of self-possession, of and the men who need to belong to each other. I mean, there are tattoos, um, mm. wonderfully huge, vulgar, <laughs> vast tattoos, of the kind I think you could probably only get in the parlour at King's Cross. <laughs> um, and there are also blood, blood, blood brotherhood swearings. Yeah. Yeah. Is this a sense in which the men are frightened of themselves and therefore have to form these extraordinary alliances marked by tattoos of these oaths?
2: Yeah, I think that's... It's, I mean, it's... Uh, it's um, it's about loyalty. I think there's a lot about loyalty in this production and about alliance and who you form alliances with and how temporary all of them are. So you see Edwige has a big tattoo of Grimaldo, and the first scene of the opera, you see her being rejected by him, having promised her the world. He pushes her out of the door and shuts the door on her as the first, almost the first thing you see. So and she 's humiliated with this massive tattoo of his name across her back i mean that 's that's, uh, very indicative of this kind of um, I, I always thought of them as as uh, like toddlers in a sand pit kind of playing over the spade they 're all grabbing for things mm-hmm. and I think if you are, I think as the minute that any of them put down any roots by identifying with anybody else, mm-hmm. it all changes, and nobody is ever nobody is ever what they say they are mm-hmm. for long. so mm-hmm. the blood brothers thing is a facade really it kind of doesn't doesn't go very deep into uh, their veins you know it's quite superficial yeah. in a way <laughs> you you've worked a great deal with with Richard Jones I
0: have. on a richard jones production does richard have everything fairly clearly sorted out in his mind by the time he arrives in the rehearsal room or is it a process of accretion and evolution and change
2: uh, it's both but it starts from it starts from a very detailed level and then it progresses to something which is extraordinarily polished and detailed and uh, multi-layered. But it starts from um, two years of work before the first day of rehearsal on the set and the costumes, and then in the final six months before the rehearsals on who the people are, what their backstories are, where they've been, where they're going, um, what's going to happen in each scene, what the props are, what the moments are, what the important, um, uh, what the important moments are to find, what the corners are in the scenes, what the structure of the whole thing is. So it's a lot of work, and uh, then you get into rehearsal, and you have six weeks to turn your plan of um, the production into the production itself mm-hmm. by applying the actors, and and you know a great deal of of what you see is brought by the actors. But it's but it's um, it's applied to a very well-formed structure already. So uh, it's very rigorous. Richard, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, thanks.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, will you welcome our last two guests, Eleanor Dennis, who's covering the role of Rodolinda in this production, and Christopher Bucknell, who is playing the harpsichord in the pit for tonight's performance. Please welcome, therefore, Eleanor and Christopher. Eleanor, some quick questions before we we, we ask if you will sing for us. Um, Should we see Rodolinda as a strong, determined woman from the beginning of this opera?
3: Uh, Absolutely, I would say so, yes. I mean, the first time you see her, um, the first uh, words that she utters is a massive outpouring of grief, and that in itself is very strong. Um, And she just goes on from there, really. She gets more and more determined. (laughs) Um, So, yes, definitely very strong.
0: And what are the vocal challenges of the
3: role, apart from getting wow. through the opera? Uh, yes, singing eight arias without dying. Um, <laughs> um, you have to have amazing breath control, first of all, um, uh, a flawless legato line, um, as well as agility and lightness in the voice, and the ability to change color, and you know, depending on what mood the aria is, and you, know, you just have to have a very wide palette. Um, of, of colours and textures to use.
0: Uh, and what are the particular things that Handel asks for that might be different from any other composer?
3: Oh, I don't know. He, he writes so beautifully. It, he writes emotions so beautifully for mm-hmm. the voice and he writes specifically for his voice type um, so well. So I, I guess he just asks that you, um, you stay true to what he writes and you stay true to the text and you do what he's written on the page. And if you do, you're on to a winner, really.
0: <laughs> you make it sound very easy.
3: Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 what are you going to sing for us? Um, Return, my darling, um, Rodolinda's aria from Act Two. Okay.
0: Christopher, thank you both very much indeed. Christopher, um, to what extent do you think Handel's score, Ares in particular, help reveal the characters? Is there a sort of psychological component here within the
4: music? It's one of the striking things I always find about Handel um, is that he's incredibly clever the way he paces the the sort of musical content um, and he paces the development of his own characters. Um, and he always balances the the sort of... It's not just the quality of the music, he balances the intensity of the, the, the individual character's music um, really, really beautifully. So he doesn't... It's not that you sit through three hours and you're subjected to one really extremely intense aria after another. He always balances them out. Um, and he always... So you get a lovely balance between the individual characters. So, for example, the the depth and intensity of the music that Handel writes for Linda, and indeed that he writes for Beterito, is not necessarily equaled by some of the slightly less important characters. Garibaldo, for example, has he has fantastic music. He has... Um, engaging music, and, he, and he, with the long, sinewy unison violin lines. But in fact, it doesn't, and lots of dissonance. But it's not, it's not sort of really intense on the same way that the music he writes for Rodolinda or for Berterido. But the other th- wonderful thing I find is, th- is I love the way he um, he paces the individual role. And in fact, this is something I always talk to young singers when when we're working on Handel. I always say they they will come with an aria from an from an opera, and I say, well, that's fantastic. But what about the other four or five arias in the role? Because you don't really understand how to sing one aria of a role until you know all the others. Um, I'm sure Ellie would agree with that. Um, but it, for example, Rodolinda, the way she's presented at the beginning at the beginning of the opera is is wonderful so instead of having just one entrance aria where you see um, which in this con- context the first the first aria that Rodolinda sings which is in C minor and is a sarabande and we understand right from the first two bars that of the loss that Rodolinda's gone through so <laughs> and the emptiness within 2 minutes You also not only see the strength, the nobility, but also the loss. But then also you've met, you've met Grimaldo, and you meet her defiance and the thing which makes her such an incredibly strong, powerful, interesting, engaging character: the fact that she, the second aria, G minor, and gone from that stately sarabande to something altogether much more frenetic, where she's turning around to Grimaldo and saying no. I will not become your queen. How, you know, right from this word go, we know where we know where she stands. And this—that's just a tiny example. of What happens through the whole of the opera? He paces these characters so brilliantly, and gives. And what Eleanor said is that they, there's so much diversity in the roles, and he requires so many depth. There's such depth of colour.
0: I'm struck by what you said a moment ago. This idea that we need to understand or listen to all the arias that a character has in order to understand who they are and how they work. Because, of course, we come from a tradition where we're used to hearing a single aria. I mean, all of us, perhaps, or some of us, grew up going to hear you know, a single aria performed with another single aria. Um, and, and therefore, it requires a kind of discipline
4: on the part of the audience to listen, perhaps, in a different kind of way. Yes, indeed, but but actually, what it really demands of the audience is it's 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 fantastic narrative writing. You know, it's it 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 backs up these these fantastic stories. You know, you don't he doesn't he's not a he doesn't write in a way which is predictable. You don't expect a lot of the music that you that you hear in this. You you do not expect at the end of Act Two. There's this extraordinary duet between Berta and Rodolinda. They have m- met each other again and just at this moment where they finally can be together again after this, and ch- don't forget, Rodolinda believed at least Bertorino to, to be dead, uh, that Grimaldo turns, t- t- turns up and says, well, Bertorino's dead, w- but it doesn't matter. Whoever you are, whether you're Bertorino or not, you're not gonna be around for very much longer. And he writes this extraordinary duet. And you know we all know what a, a lovely, beautiful love duet sounds like in, in Handel's writing. But he always confounds you. He always writes something you're not expecting. So in this case, he writes something in F-sharp minor, which is terribly kind of, on, you're on tiptoes. It, it doesn't have, it, it doesn't, you don't know where you're going. It represents what the characters are, uh, what they're feeling. They don't know where to breathe they don't know where to go next they don't know what's going to happen next so they're singing this incredible um sort of testament of love and yet we're all left sitting there wondering what's going to happen next
0: christopher thank you very much indeed ladies and gentlemen there's an opportunity in the time left if you would like to ask any of our guests questions please do there is the roving microphone so please put your hand up and catch my eye and we will direct the microphone towards you who'd like to begin Why do you feel that uh, Handel principally wrote opera stereo? Was it because that's what he wanted to do or because that's what the demand was? Jonathan, I think. Gosh. Um,
1: <clears throat> it, was, uh, it was the standard, it was the accepted style of the age he had fetched up in a city which was prepared to pay for the best uh, the top of the range opera uh, of the period, with the best singers and in the newest styles. Uh, But I think in any case, he'd started writing operas in Hamburg anyway, um, and clearly enjoyed it. Um, And he had, he's often been described as Shakespearean. He had this Shakespearean interest in human predicaments. and this, first and foremost, he is a dramatic composer, fantastic instrumental composer. Yes, the Opus Six Concerti Grossi are, I think, this is heresy, greater than the Brandenburgs. Ooh, um, uh, <laughs> covering a much wider expressive range. Shock, horror. Um, But first and foremost, he was a dramatic composer. And this was a grand opportunity. His own theatre, his own orchestra, uh, and two other opera composers working with him as competition. He loved that kind of buzz. And why not compose opera? Uh, And as we see, also, it's a wonderful training ground for the dramatic content of the oratorios, all of which, apart from Messiah, uh, and even that, in a way, is operatic, um,
0: have um, uh, are dramatic. I think there may be a lynching mob beginning to form at the top, of the Martin's said. We'll do a run, Jonathan. Another question, Really would like to Pick up another question. Yes, in the front row. Uh, for
3: someone who knows next to nothing about opera, um, how would um, someone in my position recognize uh, an opera, Sarah, as opposed to a different kind of opera?
1: God. Um, three acts. Uh, Nobody, as I say, below the rank of sort of duke or count. Um, uh, um da capo arias uh, nearly always positioned so that the character leaves the stage after his or her aria. It doesn't always happen, but it very often happens. Uh, um, very few ensembles, um, duets strategically placed, like the wonderful one in, uh, in this opera, um, and a final ensemble uh, at the very end of the opera uh, sort of summing up the overall, the character's overall uh, feeling. Uh, That is opera's area uh, written in a heightened poetic style of Italian verse. Um, That's it.
0: We've time for one more question. Would anyone like to ask a last question? Well, then, it simply remains for me to thank all of you for being here this evening for this pre-performance talk, to hope that you will enjoy what you're going to see as much as I did when I came to see it um, and look forward to it again, but also to thank principally our guests, Jonathan Keats, Richard Gerard-Jones, Eleanor Dennis and Christopher Bucknell. Thank you all very much indeed for being with us.